Welcome back to Octopulse, our Detroit News, Detroit Red Wings podcast. I'm assistant sports editor Mark Faulkner, joined by beat reporter Ted Colfin. Later in the podcast, we'll hear from Marco Rossi, the Ottawa center, who could wind up in Detroit next week. Next week, of course, is the NHL draft, Tuesday and Wednesday. Ted, yesterday when Steve Eisenman was asked in his news conference about his opinion of two possible players for the Red Wings with that fourth overall pick, Erie defenseman Jamie Drysdale, and our guest from the last podcast, Saginaw center Cole Perfetti. Here's what he had to say. They're both really good young players. Vintage Iserman there. They're both good players, Tad. Straight and to the point. He's not tipping his hand, and you can't really blame him, can you? Oh, no, not at all. I mean, it's a game in a way. You want to show people who you're going to be taking. Interesting, Mark. I mean, I think there's a group of players there, and I'm sure they've kind of, in their own little world, they've narrowed it down to who they like or who they might be getting, but there's certainly about four or five players there that could help them be help them in a lot of different ways. It's going to be very interesting. The draft basically starts at number four because pretty much everybody knows who the top three players are going to be. It's just them at number four. And let's say we've talked about this so often during the season. There's, I mean, they're in mm-hmm. they're such a, a lower level of the rebuild right now. Anybody they get, it's going to be a plus. It's going to strengthen them probably. And, many ways and there's a lot of players for them there that you know are intriguing and probably help them in a relatively short period of time i still think they're going to lean i'm still leaning toward drysdale but i think perfetti is uh mm-hmm. it's almost like 50 at this point i think perfetti is an obvious choice but then you got the Askarov kid the goalie who you know some people say could be a generational goalie and obviously what team wouldn't want that and especially the Red Wings in their situation and there's several other players that are intriguing so yeah it's going to be a very interesting Tuesday evening. One of Iserman's uh, more interesting comments was comparing players in different leagues he talked about Calder Trophy winner Kale McCarr. Iserman saw McCarr play in the uh, Alberta Junior Hockey League when McCarr played for the Brooks Bandits in Brooks, Alberta, which is just south of Calgary, home of the Flames. McCarr at 75 points in 54 games. Here's Iserman's comment. I just go back to uh, Kale McCarr was playing in the uh, Alberta Junior League, um, Tier 2 League in, in Canada. And I went and watched him play, and, like, he was just so good. Um, you know, you couldn't help but think, like, he, you know, it's, he kind of could do whatever he wanted. The one particular game I went to, I think they won, like, 12 nothing. Um, so it was hard to judge him, but he just had these, uh, like, his skating and puck skills and his thinking, which is he just jumped out at you. So you would hate to hold that, hold him back for playing in a weaker league. And as a result, like, Colorado probably took him higher than – and a lot of teams may have had him just based on the league he was playing in. So honestly, I really don't take the league into account. Um, it just makes it tricky because some of them don't play a lot and uh, or don't put up big numbers, particularly the European kids don't put up big numbers. They're playing in men's league. So it can it's just one more like X factor or one more uh, um, factor that makes it hard to really judge them all equally. Carr spent two years with uh, UMass Amherst and then burst upon the scene with 50 points during the regular season and another 15 points during the playoffs. And ironically, one rookie of the year too. 
I think generally speaking, you're still going to find them mainly in the junior leagues. But I mean, it, it, that's what scouting's all about. You go find, try to find your, the best player possible. They're all over the place. And he also goes to the point about the hidden gems and later in the draft. I mean, they've mined a lot of talent. Second, third, and fourth rounds in the years past. We're talking about the Red Wings, but also Eiserman's scouting staff in Tampa. I mean, they found a lot of good players. Braden Point and Kucherov come to mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are going to be very important picks there for the Wings. And they got, what, two, three in the second round, two in the third round. So, you know, those are going to be players that they need to develop there too and hopefully someday become NHL players because like you said yesterday you can't count on your number first round pick to always be a hit so yeah there's it's good there's a lot of work to be done but just for the depth of the organization they're going to need some players developed from later in the rounds too Ted you mentioned that Drysdale was your selection in uh, your first mock draft the second one will be out on Saturday night Drysdale is also your pick there, but is it possible on Tuesday that just like last year with Mo Sider, who Eisenman saw went back to Germany for a second time, you mentioned Askarov. Is it possible that Eisenman saw something in Yaroslav Askarov, the next Andre Vasilevsky, the best prospect since Carey Price, that they might take the Russian goalie? I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not, I w- if I were a betting man, I'm not sure I'd bet a t- substantial amount on it but I certainly wouldn't doubt it I mean if you know if you have a lot of faith that this is going to be a generational type of goalie along those lines of Carey Price or what looks like Vasilevsky's turning into be heck why wouldn't you I mean solidify your net for the next 10 to 15 years and Mm -hmm. it's not the usual way to do it but obviously teams have done it and it's worked out well, so no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be totally shocked at all. I mean, he's and just knowing Steve Weiserman, he, you know, like you said, last year he took the Cedar kid when nobody really expected that. He had a lot of faith and trust in that selection. If he does with the Russian goalie, I can see that happening Tuesday night also. Last year, for the first time in fifty years in Red Wings history, the Wings didn't draft a player from the Canadian Hockey League. Eiserman took four Swedes, a Russian, a Finn, a German, two players from the USHL and two Canadians, one in a U.S. prep school and the other one in the Alberta Junior League, similar to Kale McCarr. Part of that, in my opinion, Eiserman, I think, probably had his own draft list with Al Murray in Tampa Bay, and he didn't really know Detroit scouts Tyler Wright and Jeff Finley, who were both let go three weeks after the draft. Two years before that, by the way, Wright and Finley took five CHL players who weren't even offered contracts two years later. Lane Zablocki, Zach Gallant, Cole Frazier, Riley Webb, and Brady Gilmore. Last year, it looked more like the Tampa way. Al Murray used to make a list of only the players with skill, speed, and off-the-chart competitiveness. It didn't matter where they're from. One year, Eisenman and Murray took three Russians with their first three picks. Vladislav Nemesnikov with Colorado. Nikita Kucherov, as we mentioned, Ted. He led the Stanley Cup playoffs in scoring with 34 points in 25 games. And Nikita Nesterov, who Julian Breezebois told me earlier this year, is still a prospect with 23 points in 57 games in Moscow last year. 
Last year, Eisenman probably relied on Chris Draper and Hakon Anderson, who said it was the biggest difference in drafting styles from Ken Holland. Compete level was number one. First, let's hear from Eisenman about his good friend, Grindline Center and four-time Stanley Cup champion Chris Draper. Chris and I played together for a long time. We talk a lot of, we, you know, through our playing days, we, you know, you talk hockey a lot, all the different things. We share a lot of, uh, um, uh, I don't know, I guess common uh, feel for players that we like and what we look for. I can tell, um, you know, Drapes really has a passion for scouting. Uh, even, you know, prior to me rejoining the club, I used to see him at all these tournaments, all these games, out, you know, doing the amateur drafts. So, I have a comfort, very, a very good comfort level with him, and and uh, know, you know, knowing what he's looking for and players that he likes or traits that he likes in players. So, I enjoy talking to him. He's he's a hard worker. He's very organized, and uh, our communication has been been excellent. So, Ted, how much pressure is on Chris Draper in his first official draft as head of amateur scouting to be Detroit's version? of Val Murray. It's a lot of pressure. Murray, as Darren Pang told me, he basically picked apart the amateur draft from rounds three through seven, which of course led to the Stanley Cup earlier this week. Oh, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of pressure on every scouting director this time of year, Mark, mm-hmm. I mean, especially in a situation like this where, you know, they, they have some high picks and they have a lot of picks. You need to cash them in. You need some of these people to develop in NHL players. They need the help. Uh, you just hope that some of these, from what they're thinking, they're hoping that some of these kids come along fairly quickly and form the nucleus of, uh, you know, another rebuild, another rebirth of this organization. Uh, Draper's done a lot of work. He's been on the road a lot. Mm-hmm. He's made phone calls. It'll be interesting. I mean, he's this, this is their Stanley Cup final here for those scouts. I mean, this is their big, biggest time of the year. And the first time at it, it'll be interesting to see how he does. You know, Ted, Chris Draper, he was widely credited for drafting Tyler Bertuzzi, who helped lead the Guelph Storm to the OHL title with Robbie Fabry, and who helped lead Grand Rapids to the Calder Cup title and the MVP. I wouldn't be surprised if last year's second-round pick, Robert Master Simone, was one of Draper's favorites, an ultra-competitive player, I talked to Master Simone and his Boston U coach, Albie O'Connell, about Master Simone being cut time after time from the Jack Hughes superstar team. Master Simone, he had to go to the USHL. He improved. He's 5'10". He had a good year with Boston University. But you can just see that ultra-competitiveness, the, the, the type that you see in the – in the NHL Stanley Cup final with Yanni Gourd and, and Braden Point. And Master Simone may not make it, but he was one of the key players in that second round last year. I agree with you. I think those are the types of players they will be looking for and are looking at. And it'll be interesting. I mean, obviously, Braden, we saw what Braden Point did in the playoffs. I mean, and I think we should probably just comment on that. Tampa Bay. Mm-hmm. I think both of us seem to think they were going to be the team to watch here in the last few weeks the way they were playing and the way they were gelling and no I mean I guess not not a surprise that the Lightning won the Stanley Cup and good for them I mean they've had a lot of disappointments and it just goes to show you how much of a struggle it is to win a Stanley Cup and how much you have to much adversity you have to face over the years before you know what it takes to win a cup like that. 
Okay, that wraps up the draft preview. Coming up, we'll be hearing from Marco Rossi. And after the Rossi interview, we'll talk about the Red Wings trade for Mark Stahl. Joining us now is 18-year-old Marco Rossi of the Ottawa 67s, 18 today, but turning 19 on Wednesday, September the 23rd. Marco was the leading scorer in the Ontario Hockey League with 120 points and a possible draft choice of the Detroit Red Wings with the fourth overall pick in the NHL draft, which has now moved up to October 6th. Marco, welcome to the podcast. And earlier you said that one of your favorite players growing up in Austria and Switzerland was Pavel Datsuk, who played here in Detroit for 14 years, a two-time Stanley Cup winner, a four-time Lady Bing Trophy winner, a three-time Selkie Award winner. What did you like most about Pavel Datsuk's game, Marco? Um, the biggest reason why I'm a fan of him, it was like always like I had a lot of discussion with my dad about playing hockey. And mm -hmm. my dad, he was a defenseman. So he always like teach me how to play good in defensive zone. And I took it like really serious back in, like when I was really young. So then I watched some hockey highlights and I saw Pavel Datsuk. And he's like a superstar and he's playing really good in defensive zone. So I was always like keep watching his highlights. And yeah, so... It's crazy the superstar is that good in the defensive zone. And like since that, he was like my idol and my favorite player. I spoke with your Ottawa 67s coach, Andre Tournay, and he said that he wasn't surprised that Datsuk would be sort of an idol. Like you said, a two-way game. He said that, of course, you're not, we're not comparing anybody to a Hall of Famer, but he was more of an idol. And it's interesting. You mentioned your dad and defense and Pavel Datsuk and coming back and all those takeaways and being in good position defensively. So it sounds like that was something that your dad taught you and was probably pretty natural to you. Right. Right, Marco? Yes, exactly. Like, like I said before, when I was really young, um, it's like you to always try to score goals and being like in the offensive zone really good. But my dad always like tried to teach me how to play good in defensive zone because he teach me really early. When you understand the defensive zone and you play really good, you have more time in the offensive zone. So I took a lot of pride in that, and I could see the result after that, that you have like more time with the puck and you can play more in the offensive zone. You're right. When you're back in position defensively and you're maybe behind the hash marks or helping out behind uh, the goal line, that as the play develops, you're probably in better position moving up as opposed to maybe uh, staying outside the blue line or maybe not maybe not doing all the things you should be doing. So it's sort of like, it's not counterintuitive, but it's like, it really does help if you're back there as the play develops, right? Yes, 100%. And it's even tougher like for the other teams playing against you because every line or every team who is like playing against a team who's really good in defensive zone, you hate them. So, and if you play like that, sure, it's really tough for the other teams. So... It's just like the mentality you should have, and yeah. And how about Datsuk's offensive creativity? That's, of course, highlight real stuff. Over 900 points during the regular season, about 120 points also, Marco, like in the playoffs. Anything offensively that you saw in his game that was just like a, a different level? Um, to be honest, you don't really have to talk about like Datsuk playing in the offensive zone <laughs> because he's so good in that. And yeah, he's like so creative, like he knows what to do with the puck. He makes his team mates better on the ice and he's just so smooth with the puck. And he looks, when you watch him, it looks so easy when he's playing. So it's just crazy. 
It does look easy. I, uh, in fact, just sent some questions to Pavel Datsuk, who responded. Questions about Pavel's agent, uh, Dan Milstein, who they have known each other for about 19 years. And I asked Pavel, what did you learn from the agent for 19 years? And Pavel said, don't rush. Quality comes first. Never be satisfied and always strive to be greater. So those are probably things that well, those are things he said that he took to heart for himself and he saw those in this agent. But any other thoughts uh, about the Red Wings? There's one other connection sort of too that an Austrian Thomas Vanek played here twice, just a couple of years, Marco. Yeah. But when you look back at his career, now he was the fifth overall pick and obviously that might be something you might be able to equal or surpass. But Vanek came over here for three years, I believe in Sioux Falls, and then he won... Uh, an NCAA championship with the University of Minnesota, 57 goals in two years. And then he had a year in Rochester before over a thousand games in the NHL. And again, Detroit fans just saw him here for a couple of years, but in Austria, what, what did, what did Thomas Vanek mean to young hockey players? Um, a lot. I think he was like one of the biggest reasons why the awesome player like were playing hockey because of him. He was like only like the only Austrian hockey player in the NHL. There were maybe like two other players, mm -hmm. but he was like the superstar in the NHL and he had like so many games. And it's just like, I think, another motivation for the Austrian kids that you can like believe in yourself and you have a dream that you can make to the NHL too. And of course, it was my, I would say, role model too. If, if you think about the way he made like playing in the NHL and made like so many games. Hmm. So it's, in, it's incredible. Marco, I asked this question of Tim Stutzel of Germany and his uh, good friend, uh, Mo Sider, about the emerging German hockey league and DEL. And my question to you is, do you feel, how does it feel to potentially be a role model yourself? You've played for the Austrian um, under-20 team in 2017, six goals in five games. You played again in 2018 with five points in five games. Have you even given that any thought that you could be a role model like Vanek was to you for some of the younger players? Um, yeah, now I slowly like realize it because sure. when I go to the hockey rinks, they're like coming kids and they tell me that. But I just try to be myself, try to be the best every day and just like showing them with hard work you can get better. And it's just, it's not just like talent you need. It's like the hard work and just like doing more every day than the other guys. So. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit about your father, what you uh, know about his career, what he's told you? Um, right off the top, I mentioned to you in the 1998 Spengler Cup, the team mm -hmm. that your dad was playing for uh, that you mentioned, VEU Feldkirch, a nine-time champions. They won the European Championship. And in 1998, your dad played in the Spengler Cup, won by the Canadian team, coached by Elaine Vigneault. That was certainly one of your dad's highlights, uh, a professional hockey player. You talked about him being a defenseman and teaching you that role. But what else did your dad uh, teach you about the game? And what more do you know even about his career, Marco? Yeah, of course. Like Without my dad, I wouldn't be here right now where I am. Um, he helped me so a lot. And he had like, so much experience. He played with so many great players together. So he tried to give me the best every day, like give me so many advices. When I was really young, I was, I think, old, I was like eight, nine years old. Uh -huh. And I, I, I was playing in Austria, and I was like best player in Austria. And to be honest, it's not that hard to be that good in Austria at that sure. young age. So, but he always wanted to show me that there were like other good hockey players in the world. So we flew to Sweden, we flew to Finland, 
we went to our tournaments. So he always like tried to show me there are other good hockey players. And then with 13, it was like crazy. It was like really tough for our whole family. I got up in the morning like at six. My dad woke up at five. He had to go to work. I went to school. And then he picked me up at school like around 4, 5 p.m. We drove to Zurich and that's like one hour, 30 minutes away. <laughs> and yeah, I practiced there. We came home like late midnight, like at 12 probably. And then maybe I was hungry. He cooked for me. I was hungry. And we did that like for four years. And it was really tough for my whole family. They sacrificed so much for me. And my dad lost two jobs in that time. So it's, um, it's like I have no words for that because I can't say thank you. That's not enough for them, what they did for me. And I'm just like so thankful for everything they did. Marco, that's fabulous that you, that you certainly are very grateful for what your parents sacrificed. Imagine that, losing a couple of jobs. And, you know, mm -hmm. I talked to Mo Sider about his parents and he said, you have no idea, Mark, how much they gave to me. And not just financially. He said, I would go to them, I need a stick and this. And they were there all the time. And, and even Tim Stutzel, he had to move away from his parents to go to a better system as well. So these are some of the stories, I think, that a lot of us don't understand. That there's a period there, right? For you, it was four years where there's a lot of sacrifices made by you and your family. And uh, I, I, I only assume that just creates a stronger bond, right? Exactly. And you get really, like, mentally really strong because at that young age, you got to have, a, like, a decision. Should I go to practice to Zurich and drive so long or I want to go to the cinema or like go with my friends somewhere. And if you're that young and you make those decisions, um, you just like get like mentally even stronger and stronger. And my dad even like tested me sometimes. He was always like telling me, oh, no, today we're not going to Zurich. Today you have like a day off. Yeah. And I was like that, telling my dad, no, dad, I'm, we're going to Zurich right now. And I packed my bag. I, I was like waiting in the car. So he was like, okay, I have to drive now. So... <laughs> He always like tried to test me how I feel and he just like, yeah, like I said, he wanted to test me if I want to do it and stuff like that. So I always want to do it and it's just my love hockey. So I try to do everything and you need to sacrifice so much. Like if you want to become a good hockey player. So, yeah. Well, certainly those sacrifices, like you said, that mental toughness that you learn early, you can always build on it. And we'll talk in a minute or two about your leadership role with Ottawa but another thing that Andre Tournay talked about with your dad was that your dad trusted the coaching staff, that he, he wasn't a parent who, who can continually questioned or, or uh, meddled. He simply stayed back, and, and he knew that you were in a good place with your billets and in the community and with the coaches and your teammates. And he made that point that that was something that he really respected from your father. And I wonder, like, did your dad – like he led you, but it sounded like he guided you, but it didn't sound like it was something that he was forcing you into. And you're probably not surprised, right? That Andre said that yeah. I was really thankful that he respected and he trusted. And that, that's that Andre said that was really important to him. Yes, exactly. Like my dad always told me like when I was younger, always respect the coach, whatever he's saying or telling you. And you know, maybe it's not right. It doesn't matter. You always respect the coach, whatever he's doing. And my dad has like the same thing, like what he's telling me, always respect. It doesn't matter how he's, what he's saying, just respect it. And good. it was always about me, the same thing. And with coach Andre Turin, I have a really good relationship. And he was the biggest reason why I went to Ottawa. So, yeah. And your years in uh, Ottawa, two years, um, 
Marco uh, highlighted, of course, by uh, uh, the scoring championship uh, this past season. Can you tell me a bit about your your development there and how you came in? As Andre said, you know, maybe not shy, but certainly like learning the language and, and learning where you belonged in the in the dressing room. Because he said, you know. People sometimes want to be leaders, but they have to they have to learn, they have to spend some time and observe and respect. And then it's time, he said, to then become a leader where you influence others. So coming to Ottawa, like what expectations did you did you think you could did you think you could be a top two center on the team? Or what were your expectations? When I came to Canada, it was like everything was new for me. The country was new, the food was different, the language was different, the hockey was different. That was like everything was different for me. And I just had to learn. And my expectations was like, just like learning the Canadian hockey. And that was like my goal to learn the first year. And after like a couple of games, I think it was like five, six games, I really understood like how the Canadian game is playing, like how they are playing it. And since like the sixth game, I was like playing really good, was playing first line with Ty Fellhaber and Austin Keating. And since that, we had a really good chemistry and played um, through the whole year really good together. That first year, 65 points in 53 games. I asked the same question about the playoffs to Cole Perfetti. In Cole's first year, Marco, uh, they went to the, I believe, the division final against Guelph. And I believe that Saginaw had like a 3-1 lead in the series and the lost game seven at home. And he said he learned more from that his first year than anything else because he might have been slotted as a second or third center but just a disappointment and then losing his friends who had to graduate. So that was really hard. Um, I see where your first year in the playoffs with a really good Ottawa team that was even better last year, but your first year there were 17 playoff games that you played and you had 22 points, but you didn't win the overall championship. So what did you learn from the playoffs after a good regular season? Yeah. So we had a really good um, playoff run. We had like 14 games in a row and we even had like a winning streak before the playoffs. Mm-hmm. So we learned a lot in that playoff time because we were like up in the final 2 nothing, and we lost the first, first game in golf. So we were like shocked at that moment because we, we didn't lose a game in, in the playoffs. So like I said, we were shocked and we didn't know like what we should do, how we should react. And sure. we were like a little bit shaking. And then game two, um, we were like nervous at the beginning of the game and then we lost game two. So now it's tied and we have never had like a pressure like that. And then we played in Ottawa. Everyone expects that we have to win the game. We lose again. So it's 3-2 for golf. Right. And now it was really tough at that point. And yeah, and then we lost the four, four, like four, and we lost four games in a row. So yeah, it was really tough. But I think we could learn a lot of, from these games because coming to the second year, we had like so much experience from, from that playoff run. And we could teach like so much to younger guys. And yeah, like I said, in the first year, we have like no experience in that time. So it would be really good if we could play in the second year playoffs because I think we could go really far just because we had so much experience then. You're right. COVID shut down the 67s and the OHL and, and you nearly doubled your point total, 120 points, more than two points per game. I asked uh, your coach, Andre Tournay, about what it was like. And he said, it was like you're out there all the time. And Jack Quinn was in the power play with you and other potential first round pick and, and all the opportunities. But again, he said that your role was even more important. Yes, defensively in the power play and all these points but he really liked the way you influenced others, whether it was quietly leading by example. 
And I wonder, Marco, what that felt like your second year with all the points and you could have just maybe, um, maybe not kept to yourself, but he said you really expanded your role and that was really important to him. Yes, exactly. Like in my first year, we had really good leaders and I could learn a lot from these leaders. So coming to the second year, my goal was like, of course, playing really good and stuff like that, but also become a really good um, role model in the team and being a good leader. Um, doesn't matter if it's in a locker room, on the ice, off the ice. Um, I just tried to teach them or like learn or give them advice as what I think and what I learned in my first year. So yeah, doesn't matter if it was like leading by example on the ice, the hard work, doesn't matter how you're feeling or where you're playing. If you're playing in defensive zone, always like having like 100% focused and stuff like that. And yeah, just try to give um, something like that to them. He also talked about how you get down to business, that there's no sugarcoating. And it just sounds like that's something where you have confidence to speak that way. And to, because if, if, if you're not back in your own zone and, and you're not getting knocked to your knees, and if you're not working hard, and if you're not like improving your face offs and all those things, right, your voice wouldn't be as important. Were you a little bit surprised on how your offensive game though was able to come together on a good team or was that just a byproduct of a, you know, losing in the playoffs the year before, learning from the other captains and then just this team was just uh, certainly potentially headed to the Memorial Cup. Yeah, um, to be honest, I wasn't really surprised by that with my points. Um, I knew, like, like I said before, I learned so much from my first year and coming to my second year, I just knew everything. I knew how they were playing. I knew like the lifestyle in Canada and everything like that. So I just like played my game and I just got much better. Um, I improved so much on my body, on my shot, on my skill set, on my mm -hmm. skating. So I just got much better in, from my first year to my second year. Andre also talked about um, a lot of hockey players now who are uh, under six feet tall. Braden Point, who was drafted by Steve Eisenman third round. And now, of course, he's gaining a lot of... Uh, um, recognition with his tenacity and his competitiveness. Uh, Martin St. Louis, Brendan Gallagher, Andre said, Brendan Gallagher plays like he's six foot four. And, and when he talked about your size, five, nine, five, 10, he said that maybe five years ago, that was a, a, a bigger factor that sometimes players were overlooked and there were late bloomers. But according to Andre, uh, players like yourself or Cole Perfetti or other players who are, say are under six feet tall, that they may not be as overlooked. Now, you weren't making those decisions five years ago, but you're probably often asked by, you know, scouts and GMs who are talking to you about your size and, and how that affects your play. So what, what are your thoughts what, about, about being 5'9", five 5'10", five 185, and being able to create some offense? Yeah, so I understood that really early. Like, when I was 8, 9, I was playing against 16-year-olds. And at that point, they were like much taller, much stronger than them. And I knew when I'm smaller than the other guys, I got to be like way stronger than them. I got to be quicker than them. And those like two things, I really like worked on it since I was mm -hmm. really young. And that's why I was like playing with 15 against men. I was playing pro hockey in Switzerland in the Swiss League. I'm with 15 and I was playing with 15 against like 30, 30 year olds guys. So if I wouldn't have like a good speed or if my body wouldn't be good, I couldn't play at that level. But I really understood like I got to be so strong. And right now my core and my legs are so strong. I see like no problem playing against like 
bigger guys or stronger guys. And so the heavy hockey then is that, that is that what you mean too, where you can you can get in there and make small moves like Braden Point and be quick and and not be afraid to to um, you know take a hit up against your body. Exactly, I'm not afraid against anyone because in practice it was funny. I wasn't allowed to practice against the other days. I was just like I'm allowed to go against Kevin Ball, and he's like six foot six and. <laughs> 200, I don't know how many pounds he has, he's heavy, but yeah, and that just made me better too, and when I play one against one, of course, he's really good on one-on-one and strong, yeah. but that just got me better, and I have like no problem against that, and like I said, I'm not afraid of playing against bigger guys, stronger guys, so... Yeah, I don't care how tall they are. I know I'm stronger than them, so yeah. Marco, uh, thanks for your time so far. Just a few more questions. The uh, the draft coming up, um, how important is it that you get drafted in the top five to tie Thomas Vanek, your idol? Um, on one hand, it's just a, a small footnote, but I wanted to ask uh, that question of you is, how important is it? Uh, by the way, I asked him Stutzel, how important was it to finish higher than Leon Dreisaitl? But Leon went third overall, so that's that's uh, that's very difficult to sort of, and even number five because there's so many teams, so many things could happen. But uh, um, how important is that for you to be drafted um, fifth or better? Um, to be honest, I try to control what I can control, and that's like my work ethic right now, how how I work on my body on the ice. And I try not to control or like to focus on something what I can't control with the draft. So, sure. of course, if it's going to happen, if that I get draft before one, of course, I would be I'm proud of me. But if not, then nothing's going to change because it doesn't mean when you get drafted before one, you're going to have a better career or something like that. So it's just like it, it means just that you get drafted and nothing else. That makes a lot of sense. How about the question, too, I ask of all the uh, draft picks so far about potentially being drafted by the Red Wings at number at number four with what you know, you've told us, obviously, about Datsuk, so you know a bit about you know the Red Wings. And Datsuk's first season, 2002, they won the Cup, and he won it again in 2008 and then went to the final in 2009 when you were just starting to you know, learn the game under your dad. And, and so you saw the Red Wings and you know a little bit about Thomas Vanek who spent some time here, but what would it mean if the Red Wings of Steve Eiserman and Chris Draper got up there and just said, you know, we're, we're taking Marco Rossi? Um, yeah, it would be really nice because, um, like I said, my favorite player is Pavi Datsuk, who is playing in Detroit. So it would, of course, mean a lot because my hockey idol is playing in that, or he was playing in that team where I'm playing right now. But yeah, I'm just like not really thinking about that right now. I'm just like thinking um, that I get better right now. And you said for the last couple of months you've been uh, with the team. You said that uh, Austin Matthews played for in the Swiss League and that your agent said, let's just get ready for the um, NHL draft on October the 6th. And that you only had, you said, I think, a, a couple of games you could have played. So you've been working out with this team and unlike, I believe, Stutzel and Raymond, who I believe might have some ice time, you've gone that way. But what's it been like the last two months during the pandemic? You know, you've worked on your core, you're on the ice, and you're working out. So this must be a period where, you know, you've got to wait a little bit, but we're almost home, right? That you're Pretty soon yeah. you're going to find out, you know, um, what team that is going to draft you. Yeah, exactly. I've had a really long summer. I came home from the corona and where I was like in March, mid-March, mm-hmm. I was home in Austria and the next day I, I, tra- um, I trained right away from personal coach 
Um, his name is Max Cavada. We trained right away um, on my body because at the beginning it was really tough working out and stuff like that because of the coronavirus. Everything was like um, shut down and stuff like that. But we were working like every day, twice a day till it was like June, July, every day. And then I went on the ice of Zurich for eight weeks or like longer than that. Mm-hmm. And now I'm here. And when you watch me in March or if you compare me in March, Marco and now with me, you see like two completely different persons because really, I, I got so much um, faster. I improved my speed so much. And that was like the biggest or like my main goal to be much faster. And I had like big improvements in, in my speed, in my explosiveness, in my stride, in everything like that. And of course, with my body, with my core, even got much stronger. My legs got bigger, stronger. And yeah, I improved so much. And like I said, you see completely two different persons right now. Well, according to a lot of scouts, you are one of the most uh, well-prepared players to make the next leap with the late birthday, September 23rd, uh, a little bit older. That's not a significant factor, but it's certainly a factor as well. And like you said, it's been a long summer and you're working and you're really ready to, to head out on the ice. So um, it all depends, of course, which team takes you. I talked to Andre, who's going to coach the Canadian team at the Worlds this year. And Austria has a team in there. So it's, as, as he said, it's possible. He thinks that you, you know, he, he thinks it's, you know, depending what team and the needs. Yes. Last year, only Hughes, Kako and Kirby Doc played regularly, so just the three picks, and then others will will be in the NHL at a at a further date. But he said he was looking forward to the um, the World Under Twenties. He even thought there might be a bubble set up in Edmonton. There's nothing official, but that they're really you know your teammates from Austria could come in to yeah. this setting. So I guess it's an exciting year ahead of you. I wouldn't mind your thoughts about potentially. Playing at the at the worlds, I asked this as well of Raymond and Stutzel if they wind up there as well. But you'd be coaching, you'd be playing against your coach, you'd be leading a young Austrian team. That would be exciting too, wouldn't it? As as you know, if if you don't make it first year in the NHL, yes, of course. Um, every time I play for my country, it means a lot because I'm just so proud to play for t- for Austria. And, of course, it would be really funny playing against the coaches and playing against my teammates, um, Jack Quinn and Graham Clark. And, yeah, I think it's going to be a really nice experience for the whole Austrian players because maybe it's the only lifestyle or, like, the only thing in the life they play against, like, such great players like that in mm-hmm. that time. So it's going to be a really good experience for them, too. And I think we should just enjoy it that moment. Any final thoughts now as you're, I mean, you're, you're just about ready to turn 19, so that's a big birthday for you as well. Have you given any thought to how far you guys have come from those road trips when you're, you know, you're up at 5, 5.30 in the morning and, you're, you're, and, and now all of a sudden, of course, you're, you're just a month away from finding out which NHL team that you'll be a part of? Now I really realize it because now we drive like to Zurich maybe like t- three times a week or four times a week. And yeah. we were like talking to each other and say like, holy shit, that was like such a long road trip. Really. <laughs> and to be honest, it was really tough. If, it, if I think back, I would say like, I'm so proud of me at 13 that I did that because it's really tough driving so long to the practice and coming back. Right. And especially for my dad. I could maybe sleep in a car, but I couldn't sleep in a car. <laughs> so yeah, it was incredible. And, I'm just, yeah, like I said, after that, we drove to Zurich and stuff like that right now. I'm still like thanking my dad and said, yeah, you're yeah. incredible. And it's, 
I have no words for that. Well, there are special times and you should certainly enjoy those trips because, you know, you could fall asleep and I'm sure your dad is just, just happy that you're happy. And uh, again, that's one of the nicest compliments that Andre gave your dad that he trusted him and he's left him alone and he hasn't been like a meddling parent. So Marco, mm -hmm. we really appreciate your time today. Uh, best of luck. Thank you very much. Appreciate it a lot. Thank you. Our thanks again to Marco Rossi, who 100% has the mental toughness that Eiserman requires. Ted, one other topic, uh, Steve Eiserman's trade for Rangers veteran defenseman Mark Stahl in a 2021 draft pick for future considerations. First of all, here's Eiserman on what Stahl will bring to the wings. You know, we're looking uh, to fill spots on the left and right side, to be, to be honest. Uh, um, plugs a huge hole on our D. Um, we, you know, we won't be bringing back uh, um, Jonathan Erickson. We won't be bringing back uh, um, Trevor Daly. So there's two spots on our left side um, you know, th that need to be filled. And, you know, we have Patrick Nemeth, Den Denny DeKaiser, and uh, Mark Stahl fits in nicely on the left side. Uh, he's a good, solid defender, good size. Obviously, he's been in the league a long time. He's good penalty killer, so he, he plugs a hole for us on the back end. And, Ted, what did you make of that trade for Stahl, bringing in this 13-year veteran and getting that draft pick next year, a second-rounder? They have a chance to really pull, pull a coup here. I mean, they get a second-round pick, which, you know, they love at this point. That's what, you know, the big thing there. They want to add as many assets in draft picks as they can, so they have a valuable second-round pick there next year. And Mark Stahl could help them a little bit this year. I mean, let's face it, Mark Stahl at 34 or 35 isn't what he was at 24 or 25. And talking to a lot of Rangers people, it seems like he was there, Jonathan Erickson, for the last year. But he has a chance to be a valuable part here. He's a good penalty killer. I think you can build up his, uh, build up his reputation again here and, and maybe deal him for another second or third round pick at the deadline. So in a way that'd be like, yeah, two or three valuable picks you get back for the guy. Uh, it, it doesn't hurt at all. I mean, you know, they didn't give up much for him and you got a guy who could help you at all. He's for sure. He's got a, he could be a really good leader in the locker room there. And you have a potential for, you got one second round pick and you can get another good pick at the at the deadline so it's on the surface it seems like a plus plus that's for sure and just to let our listeners know next week we'll have a couple of podcasts we'll have one after the first round on tuesday and then another podcast after the second round we'll also have live blogs for both days on our website at uh, detroitnews.com and as i mentioned earlier your second mock draft will be up online on the weekend heading into the draft. So a busy week ahead, and that'll do it for episode 36 of Octopulse, taking the pulse of the Red Wings rebuild in year two of the Steve Eisenman regime. Thanks for listening, everyone, and stay safe, and we'll talk to you next week, Ted. See you later, Mark.